Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and that through her I too can build a family. So she gave him a servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her maidservant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune! So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am! The woman will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, look, do you ever, do you ever look at church and just think, 
What a mess. I mean, what a mess. Uh, Don't get me wrong, um, one of my biggest encouragements this year has been seeing God and his gospel at work transforming people's lives. Uh, I was saying to some of the students earlier in the week that um, it's really, it's lifted my heart and filled it with joy to see people come to faith in Jesus for the first time this year and, uh, and to see people make costly decisions to put Jesus first and to see lives transformed But, but, you don't need to be part of a church for very long to also see Christians hurt one another sometimes, speak unkindly to one another sometimes, struggle to forgive one another sometimes, to see sin and pain and mess I think of a situation of, in a church I was part of a, a number of years ago with, with two women, and, and I don't really want to go into the details, but it still makes my heart sink to think of that situation. And every church I've been a part of has experienced in different ways the fallout from sinful decisions, bad choices, unmet desires, family breakdown, And Christians simply not being transformed by the gospel in the way that we long that they would in various ways. And to be honest, sometimes do we not just look at the church and think, this is the people of God. What do I do with the mess that I see in front of me? And hey, it might be that you're here this evening and um, you're just looking into the Christian faith. And, And if that's you, you're really welcome here. There's always a number like that amongst us. It's a real joy to have you here, just listening in. And, and it may be that you're beginning to think, well, look, maybe there's something to this. Maybe what Jesus said and did really is the most important thing in the world. But, but one of the things that just holds you back is your experience of church. And you've seen some of the mess and and maybe you've experienced some of the pain. Well, listen, that's what we're thinking about this evening. What do we do with the mess? And um, we're diving back into the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Uh, We heard that uh, wonderful, um, painful, messy passage uh, read. And the chapter that we're looking at, the end of Genesis 29, the beginning of Genesis 30, is really a foundational story for the people of God. You see, these 12 sons that are born in this chapter will become the 12 tribes of Israel the Old Testament people of God. And so this is really a story of our origins as God's people. But what a mess it is. The family described in this chapter are frankly a disaster area. The things that we've had read for us feel like they would be more comfortable on the Jeremy Kyle show than at Sunday evening church. Let's be quite honest about that. If you've been with us, you will know that um, Jacob, the central character of this part of Genesis, has married two sisters, beautiful Rachel and her older sister Leah. And Jacob loves Rachel but he was deceived into marrying Leah first by her husband. Uh, Sorry, by her father, Laban, into becoming her husband. Laban has made himself rich by this deception, but the misery and the pain and the sin that will come out of that deception in this chapter, well, it's terrible, isn't it? It's very, very messy. 
Let's look at each of the characters in turn to begin with, shall we? First of all, you've got Leah. Have a look down at verse 31 at the beginning of the reading. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And so here is Leah. She's not loved by her husband, Jacob. And as we go through the chapter, we see that all she wants deep down in her heart is for her husband, Jacob, to notice her and to love her. Uh, You can tell what the characters are thinking and feeling in the story by the names that they give to the children. Because each of the names is a pun on a Hebrew word. And the meaning of the name is explained for us in the chapter. And did you feel the sadness in the names that Leah gives to her children, to her sons? Uh, Verse 32, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Reuben means see, a son. And it's as if Leah is saying, God sees me, but but what I really want is for Jacob to notice me. If only my husband would see me. But it seems like having a son doesn't work because again, verse 33, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon, which means he hears. Or again, verse 34, uh, when she conceived and gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And so he was named Levi, which means attached. Uh, You can see it just in the footnote there. And do you hear the sadness of these names? Do you hear the longing of Leah That Jacob would just notice her, see her, love her. And of course, the tragic irony in these names is that we see again and again that the Lord God does see her. The Lord God notices her. He loves her. But she can't see that because her heart is so longing for the human affection of her husband. The tragic irony that the Lord loves her And she can't see it. So hungry is she for this relationship and for this love. And how common it is and how tragic it is when people can't see the love of the Lord for them because their heart is so longing for some human relationship. And here is Leah who longs to be loved and is not. And maybe there's just a Just a ray of light in the name she gives her fourth son in verse 35. Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. And of course, Judah means praise. So what about Rachel? Well, we know that Rachel experiences great sadness too, because in verse 31 we were told that she's barren, but she's also bitter with envy. Just have a look at 30 verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. You know, one commentator says here the beauty queen becomes a drama queen. But lest we're tempted to, um, lest we're tempted to to laugh, to distance ourselves in some way for Rachel, isn't this the great giveaway 
of the things that we love too deeply and too much. Anything that you say to the Lord, if you don't give me that thing, frankly, I'd rather, my life wouldn't be worth living. I'd rather not go on. And here is Rachel, and we see the deepest longings of her heart, the thing she says, frankly, if I can't have that, I don't want to live. And Rachel will do anything to outdo her sister in this chapter. Did you see that? She cooks up this plan with her servant girl, Bilhar, to sleep with her husband and have children for her. And how much do you have to... um, how much do you have to be desperate for kids to send another woman to sleep with your husband? But, but look at the names that she gives the children that are born. Verse 6, then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He's listened to my plea and given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan, which means vindicated. Or uh, verse 8, then Rachel said, I've had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. And so she named him Naphtali, which means struggle. I mean, it's a mess, isn't it? This family, it's a disaster. Can you imagine what it was like at the breakfast table in Jacob's household? As, as Rachel says, Oh, uh, could, um, could you pass the butter? My son, vindicated, needs the butter because God has vindicated me. And, uh, and Leah says, oh, well, of course. Uh, our husband is really attached to me. Could you pass the butter to, uh, to uh, that, that woman over there? You know, atmosphere like ice. And, of course, things just get worse in the mess that is this family because in the arms race to have children, if servant girls are in play, well, Leah's got one too, hasn't she? Zilpah. And so Leah sends in her servant girl, and Jacob has two more sons. Verse 11, Gad, what good fortune. You hear the bitter irony of that statement? What good fortune as she lords it over her sister. Verse 13, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, which means happy. So easy when we feel that we're wronged to just lash out, do anything to lord it over another person. And here is Leah drawn into this terrible arms race. And then you get this sordid deal with the mandrakes. Verse 14, during the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah... Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And look, there's a bit of debate about exactly what ancient people believed about mandrakes, whether they were a kind of aphrodisiac or a boost to fertility. Either way, you could imagine if they had email in the Bronze Age, mandrakes were the sort of products you'd get a lot of unsolicited emails trying to get you to purchase. And it's all about the race to have children this dialogue about mandrakes and the bitterness of that line in verse 15. Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? You take away my son's mandrakes too? And so they make this sordid deal. Rachel says, well, you get to sleep with Jacob. Rachel gets the the fertility boost, the mandrakes. 
and Leah ends up with more sons out of the equation. Two more sons. Uh, Verse 18, Issachar, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservant to my husband. And we think, really? Or verse 20, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I've borne him six sons. And you hear the longing of Leah's heart, six sons in, and still he doesn't love her. And Zebulun, which means honor. And then at last, for Rachel, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She has a son, but she's still not satisfied because in verse 24, she named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. And Joseph means may the Lord, may the Lord add to the number. It's a mess, isn't it? Two women deeply longing for things. Two women sinning against one another in all sorts of ways. And what about Jacob? I mean, Jacob has been the central character of Genesis for five chapters. He's going to be the central character for another five chapters. And yet, he's strangely passive in this one, isn't he? Almost absent. All he does is shout at his wife in verse 2 and get passed around between four different women. Jacob, of all people, should know not to get involved in sleeping with his maidservants. It had caused constant misery to his grandfather, Abraham, and yet he's completely passive in this chapter Here is a man who simply will not roll up his sleeves and get involved in the simmering tension in his family. And maybe just a word to the men here. How much pain do we cause in our families and our churches by not being willing to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the mess of relationships? Here is Jacob, whose family is tearing itself apart and who stands by passive. It's a mess. So what do we learn from this story? Uh, What can we take away this evening and learn for ourselves as Christians? Um, Paul writes in Romans 15 that everything written in the past in the Bible was written for our instruction. So what can we learn from this? Well, look, at one level, this is a passage that shows us vividly that sin spoils everything. Laban deceived Jacob. Uh, He made himself rich but caused untold misery to his daughters. Leah lorded it over her sister. Rachel took revenge whenever she got the chance. Jacob just would not get involved. And wow, sin promises a lot, but it delivers nothing but misery in this chapter. And perhaps in particular, we see here the sinfulness of polygamy. See, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, God made it very clear that his pattern for marriage was between one man and one woman for one lifetime, excluding all others. And here we see how awful it is when we ignore God's good design for marriage. How terrible and painful and messy and bitter it is when we reject that teaching 
that marriage is for one man and one woman for one lifetime, excluding all others. But look, the Bible is not actually a textbook of moral examples. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's not a book full of two-dimensional goodies with dinner plates stuck to the back of their heads as halos. The Bible is the story of real people, real mess that we can relate to, and supremely, it is the story of God and his promise to fix a world that is broken and full of sin and pain. Here's a simple principle to take away whenever you read the Bible, okay? Ready? When you read a Bible story, God is always, always the hero of the story. And the question is always, what does this teach me about God and his promises and purposes? And we see God at work in this chapter, don't we? Right at the beginning, chapter 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Uh, Again, in chapter 30, verse 17, it's not the plan with the mandrakes. It's not the deception and scheming of the women. But verse 17, God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Or again, in verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. And you see, this story of mess and pain is also the story of God and his promises. So what do we learn from it? Well, I've got three, three simple lessons, really, for us from this chapter. Uh, and the first one is this. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Uh, Paul mentioned at the beginning of the service that God promised Abraham... This amazing blessing, God's great people in God's perfect place, enjoying the blessing of a relationship with God. And so far in the book of Genesis, we have seen um, uh, this family of Abrahams living in the promised land, and we've seen them enjoying God's blessing in various ways. But the family has been pretty small, just... um, Just the odd son here or there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God said to Abraham, and then he repeated to Jacob, that his descendants would be like the stars in the night sky or the dust of the earth. Sometimes I think about that promise when I hoover the house. You know, I see the mess of dust in front of me and think, God's people are going to be bigger than all of these. Okay, And here in this chapter... Well, boom, it's like child after child after child, isn't it? Every other verse, as God explodes the number of people, and here begin the 12 tribes of Israel. A friend of mine was, um, was given two guinea pigs when we were kids, and they were meant to be brothers, but it became clear fairly quickly that they were actually a boy and a girl, and he ended up with about six cages of guinea pigs. And this chapter's a bit like that, isn't it? Son after son after, you know, about seven to ten year period, a dozen sons and a daughter. I mean, that's, that's pretty good going, isn't it? God keeps his promise that the number of people is going to be huge, and it begins here. So why does that matter? 
Why does that matter for you and me? Well, look, if you're a Christian here today, God has made amazing promises to you. God has promised to forgive you for every wrong thing you've ever done against him or another human being. He's promised to save you from his right judgment in hell for heaven for an eternity. He's promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. How do you know that you can trust him when he makes those promises to you? Well, you can read the book of Genesis and you can see his track record. God is a God who makes promises and always always keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. But then we see too in this this chapter that the way that God keeps his promises here is through sin. God keeps his promises through sin. What do I mean by that? Well, we'll think again about the details of this story. God, God doesn't keep his promises in this chapter in spite of human sin. He doesn't keep his promises sort of around the side of human sin, circumventing or something like that. God uses the rivalry of these two women and the passivity of their husband. He takes those sinful actions... And he's so sovereign, so in control, he's even able to use human sin to accomplish his good purpose and to keep his promise. Now look, we shouldn't read a chapter like this and think, well, if that's the case, it doesn't matter if I sin. After all, we see the unbelievable pain and misery of sin in this chapter very clearly. And the Bible is quite clear from beginning to end that when we fail to love God and other people, we are responsible for that. God's sovereignty never excuses human sin. And yet, we see here that God is so sovereign, so in control that he can even take human rebellion and what human beings mean for evil and use it for good to keep his promises and to save. Look, I can't tell you how those two things can both be true, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I could talk around the subject for a while, but I can't can't really help you to see how those two train tracks ever connect with one another. But I do know that it's true, because as a Christian, I believe in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the darkest hour of human evil. Just think about that for a moment. God came to earth as a man, and how did humanity react? We judicially murdered him. The darkest hour of human evil, and yet it was all part of God's plan to save humanity. And so Paul is able to write in Romans 3 that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. God was able to take the worst moment of human rebellion against him and to use it to save us from sin and from his judgment because Christ bore the penalty we deserve for our sin. 
God is so sovereign, so in control, he can even keep his promises through human sin and rebellion. Uh, A friend of mine um, and his wife um, had a a little boy who was born with spina bifida. Uh, And some of the medics here will know that what that means is that this um, poor little um, baby had to have um, a couple of quite major operations in the first few weeks of its life. And, um, uh, and there was an occasion where, um, because um, the baby was to be operated on, it couldn't be fed for 24 hours. And so my, my friend is, is holding his baby, just a few weeks old, in his arms, and it is howling in the way that only a newborn that hasn't been fed can howl. And, and he's saying to the baby, there is a purpose to this. That this, is, this is not pointless. There's a reason for this. And then it occurred to him, how often God must be saying that from heaven to us as we are sinned against. And yes, even as we sin and repent, that in his sovereignty, there is a purpose to this. You see, we're not going to throw God's plan and his promise um, off course by human rebellion because he's that in charge. The God of the cross keeps his promises even through human sin. But then finally, we also see in this chapter that God keeps his promises to sinners. God makes and keeps promises to sinful people. Uh, I said at the beginning, this is a sort of foundation story for the people of God. This is where the 12 tribes of Israel came from. And you can imagine this story being read out to the Old Testament people of Israel. You know, it'd be a bit like like when a comedian um, sort of begins their stand-up by saying, you know, do we have anyone from Scotland in the audience? And um, if we do this evening, you're keeping very quiet. Or, or, you know, um, do we have anyone from Wales or something like that? You get a big cheer as your nationality is mentioned. And you can imagine here, as the story was read, people would be thinking, yes, Dan, that's me, that's my family, my tribe. And then they think about the story and about what their tribe's name means. And what a mess it is. What sin and brokenness and pain they came from. But you see, this is the story of the people of God. God didn't choose us because we were smarter than other people, or stronger, or more moral, or more spiritual. In love, God chose broken, hurting, and sinful people and promised us mercy, and promised us life and blessing as part of the people of God. And we never move on from that as Christians. We never move on from this story being our story. Christian, you can never get proud when you read a chapter like this, because this is us. You ever longed for something in this world more than you longed for the joy of knowing God as your God? Ever felt that, um, that inner urge to just respond with rage and get revenge on someone you felt had longed you? You ever held a relationship at arm's length because you didn't want the mess, you just didn't want to get involved? 
And yet God makes promises to people like us. Sinful people. Broken people who long for the wrong things. And in Jesus Christ, he offers us mercy and eternal life, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Uh, at, um, at, our, uh, at our last church, there was a wonderful uh, young woman called Sydney. Um, Sydney was in her, uh, well, is in her early 20s. Uh, she's got three children. And when we knew her, she was living in a hostel um, for, um, for women who fled from an abusive relationship and who are hiding from their other half. And um, uh, wonderfully, Sydney became a Christian. And I remember chatting to her about her journey to becoming a Christian. And she said, you know, the first time I came to church, I thought church definitely wasn't for people like me. Not with a family like my family and a story like mine. And then I heard about Jesus and how he came to have mercy And she'd put her trust in him. And you see, that is the story of the people of God from beginning to end. Broken, hurting, and sinful people. And God promises us eternal life with him through Jesus Christ and a restored world. All because of Jesus. And the God who makes promises to sinners keeps them and nothing, nothing will stop him. And so look, when you, see, when you see the mess, when you look at church and you think, oh, this is not how it should be. Look, we can't be happy with sin. Sin spoils everything. We should never, we should never tolerate sin or think it's okay. But, but praise God because he is merciful and he makes and keeps promises even to people like us. He blesses the broken. And that is the good news of Genesis. The good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Our Lord God, would you please teach us to trust you to keep your promises in all the mess and the pain and the sin that we see in this world and in our own lives. Would you help us to trust you in Jesus Christ today and every day for the rest of our lives? In his name, amen.